Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot, where we are learning leadership lessons from your favorite stories. Hi, I'm Brian Nutwell. And I'm Drew Perot. And we're on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a Wonder Tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brains better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. Thanks for joining us for Avatar Part 2. This week, we're going to talk about how and when we need to reset our maps. In Part 1, we talked about how our maps of realities really form up our worldview and our models that we use to operate on a day-to-day basis. It helps form up our strategies, our tactics, and our operations and execution. Our maps of realities are really based on our values and our objectives, or somebody's values and objectives. If we don't have our own goals and values, well, it's likely that someone does, and that's influencing how our map of reality is built. So to tie that into Avatar, we see that Jake has these different influencers, whether it's Grace from the science perspective, whether it's Natiri, or whether it's Parker and the Colonel and their nefarious objectives. At the beginning, these values are forming up Jake's map. And so he is bought into this military mission and he's sharing all this intel with them about the pillars of home tree. But then we also have a different experience with somebody like Trudy going through a similar exercise where she's realizing that maybe her map of reality is not aligned with her personal values. She's kind of a grunt in the organization, a helicopter pilot, and she's going along on this mission up until a certain point when she realizes, okay, maybe my map of reality has changed or maybe I need to change my map of reality. So tying it back into the cup metaphor that we used in the first half, Trudy recognizes that maybe she let somebody else fill her cup a little bit too much and she needs to pour some of that tainted water out of the glass and start to refill her own cup. Uh, leaning into the metaphor, I love it. Yeah, let's pivot away from uh, Jake as the central part of the story here and talk about some of these peripheral characters, because this is one of the things that we see is that the individual experience of these grunts, you know, the people that have different viewpoints in the world is in classic fashion. They've all got fairly well-defined personalities and roles, and they all get little tiny moments throughout the course of the movie. One of our first good moments with Trudy, of course, is they're flying up into the uh, the Hallelujah Mountains, the big floating rocks in the sky. And she points out that there's something about the energy fields that's messing up with all their instruments. And so, well, I guess we're doing VFR from here on out. And of course, Norm's the straight man. So he's like, oh, so what's VFR? Well, it means you got to see where you're going. You can't see anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Trudy's super pragmatic and she's very much into like, I'm just going where I'm told, but I've got the you know ground level skills that I can figure it out. She's supremely confident in her abilities, and she's not at all worried about the higher-level mission stuff. She's just doing the job. She's just there to fly the planes for the helicopters. We have a bunch of characters like that. They're all sort of there just doing their thing, but they're, they've been put in a role, and they're performing that role to the best of their abilities. They all kind of get confronted with different challenges, right? They all get confronted with examples where their their worldview isn't working out for them very well. And so we, we see them grappling with that in different ways. In some ways, it's better to look at some of the non-central characters. Well, I guess Trudy's more of a central character still, but kind of the peripheral characters, because in the end, those characters, <laughs> some of their story arcs end up being a little bit more accurate because either maybe the scale isn't as large or the <laughs> the hero isn't so tall or something like that. So you right. get a little bit more of something that might be accurate to your own life. 
Well, yeah, and we, they set Jake up as the guy who gets to have the full character arc, but we see little mini character arcs, you know, all around. And whether that's on the on the Navi side, the Sute, or like presumed, you know, heir apparent leader, you know, he gets confronted with some <laughs> some challenges and comes around. And Trudy does, so do Norman Grace. We get these challenges, but part of what's going on, right, is that, like we said in the in the first episode, where Jake is getting to walk both sides of the line and to see both versions of reality, and he has to hold that tension in his head, but he has sort of enough information to decide. Very few of the other characters have that opportunity. And that's probably, like you said, that's probably more realistic. Most of us are not the plane walker. Most of us are not living in all the possible different worlds. And so we're inherently bought into our worldviews, but we have to look to others to give us the clues as to where we should be questioning. And that's kind of tying back into where we were ending the last episode, which was we do look to others for our maps of reality. There's no way around that. It's not like we're just going to go out into the world on our own Indiana Jones style and just, all right, we're not going to improvise our way to victory, basically, without maps or with just coming up with our own map for every single thing. Imagine how inefficient that would be. So therein lies the conflict, right? <laughs> is we can't operate with without other people's maps, but also we have to be very careful when we are operating with other people's maps. Well, and I think this is one of those super fun and cool things about this movie, right? Is how incredibly cool all this stuff is. On the human side, you have these, you know, exoskeletal walking suits, amplified mechs that are, you know, part of their war machines. There's really cool looking aircraft and the machinery and the tech and the spaceships on the one side is very hard edged and mechanical with hydraulic pistons. And, you know, you can see clearly kind of how they're working. Like he shows the he shows the tech working. And on the other side, you've got the relationship with the animals and you've got the sort of immersion in the world. And Trudy can just jump into any random helicopter and pick it up and fly it. But if you, if you want to fly with one of the dragon things, it's going to try to kill you first and you have to develop a lifelong relationship. And both of these systems are thoroughly evolved for purpose. And they are, they're, they're representative of the way things evolve in different ways in, in the real world. And they're exaggerated out to the nth degree. And again, it's a movie. They're incredibly cool. It's just really fun watching the helicopter fly around on the floating mountain. It's really fun watching Jake leaf off the cliff with this dragon and try to learn to fly it. But it's also a huge contrast, of course. You know, it supports the story of the contrast in goals and values and approaches to the world. And we get characters that start to realize sort of the limitations of their chosen modes, you know, where, where they come up against each other and where that works and where that doesn't. And even Jake going into the big final battle, right? He's communing with Awa. He's like, I, I don't think this is going to work. Like, I'm going to need some help because this doesn't seem like a good plan. You know, even even Trudy, at, you know, sort of the same time frame as they're going into this. She's like, I was hoping for some sort of tactical plan that doesn't involve martyrdom. That's the grunt line, right? Like, you know, what's the plan that doesn't involve me sacrificing myself on the altar of your goals? Like, what's that plan for success? Because I really want to hear about that one. That's a perfect point to talk about, though, and to bring back in the tech versus the animals here. And what you were saying there is really interesting about how the tech is very narrow and defined for a purpose and not so flexible because the tech is designed by the humans and basically assumes that their map of reality is the map of reality and we can just drive towards our goal. We'll just get that unobtainium. We'll get out. We'll get rich. We'll go back and get our legs back, whatever it might be. Right. 
So basically you're saying my map of reality is the ultimate map of reality and where I'm wrong, I don't care anyway. I'll just overpower it with, <laughs> you know, with missiles, whatever. But the animal side, the Navi have to be reliant on somebody else's map of reality. Like when Jake's up there for the first time and he's going to ride the dragon and Natiri's like, you got to go fast. You got to make the bond. And he's like, what do I do? He's, she's like, just think fly. And he just like falls off the edge, right? It's like, there's no manual for this dragon. There's no controls. You're dealing with this dragon's map map of reality basically it's some combination of your map and the dragon's map and they're going to be in conflict at times and you're going to have to figure out how to get those two things to work together so it's this decentralization of control the navi have come to be very comfortable with it right they're more so the empty vessels that say like i'll share with the things around me and together we'll come to a conclusion that's satisfactory for both and sometimes that conclusion is you know i need to kill the animal so i can eat and other times that conclusion is i need to let the animal have my territory or whatever because this is it's this is what it does and it's the apex predator yeah, so one of the delightful things about this movie is that the worldviews are playing on the screen, right? The visual language of the technology and the visual language of the ways that they traverse the world and the visual language of, you know, the characters expresses the way that they look at the world. You know, these concentric circles that you talked about on the first episode. It's fractal zoom all, all the way in or out, and you get sort of the same same messages layered in different ways. And that's delightful when you're in that perfectly optimized for purpose system. But when you start to start to get these conflicting worldviews, you re you start to realize that there's some real limitations, right? The the dragon thing is really, really cool unless you're fighting somebody that's got rocket launchers and then it's <laughs> no longer exactly optimized for the purpose. How do we then take and take advantage of the decentralized view? Because I think as humans, you know, we tend to, while we might not identify with the military in here, and even this isn't like this military here is overblown totally. The military is, is, as I understand it, having not been in the military, not as top down as this is, where it's just like, just do the thing and screw you. It's like the military is very mission and, and vision oriented, but it's also like, hey, you're going to do this mission. So you create the map <laughs> and then we'll talk about what map you create and we'll work through to a solution together. Or if you're in a combat situation, then uh, you've got the best working map. So you're going to have to figure out what to do. I'm not just going to tell you to fire the missiles at home tree and you just deal with the consequences. How do we take advantage as humans of the more Navi type approach of the decentralized empty vessel approach? Because I think we already lean a little bit more towards the centralized control approach. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Let me answer it slightly tangentially with one of the things they do very well, right, is that the Navi stuff just looks cool. It looks fun. The Navi are having a lot more fun being Navi than the humans are being humans, right? When you think about what you aspire to in your life and what the people around you aspire to in their lives, everybody wants to be effective. They want to be cool. They want to feel really powerful and skilled, and they want to go do their thing and be amazing at it and be recognized and rewarded for it. One of the points I wanted to hit on this is one of the traps here. This movie is, of course, a classic white savior narrative, right? Jake is the outsider who happens to be a white man, comes into this situation and learns everything there is to know about the culture in six months and then turns out to be better than anybody there and saves the world. And that's the classic movie trope, right? It's a Lawrence of Arabia. It's Dances with Wolves. It's, you know, it's The Matrix. That's a thing that is it's an effective storytelling trick, but it's also based on a very specific set of cultural understandings. 
And so not trying to, you know, justify or excuse that as the only correct way to look at the world, but it is absolutely a trap for us individually to think that we're going to come into a situation and quickly learn everything there is to know about it and be the one that gets to do all the cool stuff and solve the problems and save the world and be the hero. And Going back to what we were talking about in the first episode, right, the goal of listening and learning, the goal of compassion, the goal of engaging with the people who have the skills and the knowledge and are on the ground level is not so that you can then take over and do their job better than they can. The goal of that is to build the shared reality so that you can empower them to go be heroes. You can empower them to go be warriors or scientists or whatever it is that they want to do, but that you guys can kind of share the mission together, but then be able to let each person have their own chance at being the hero or have their own chance at deploying their skills in the way that they feel is cool because they, you know, they picked their job for a reason. They, they chose to be a salesperson or a finance person or an engineer or a test pilot or what the heck ever, right? Because it's some, there's something about that that they love so how do you unlock that how do you get them all to like pulling on the rope in the same direction or empowered to go like you said empowered to go explore their space there are some fabulous practices in the military about empowering people on the ground to make decisions and improvise how do we enable that how do we get the top level mission get the shared reality and then like okay you guys are the strike team go figure it out well, I think that that's really the mission of Wonder Tour and why it's so kind of convenient almost to be able to keep pulling back into the magnanimous leader and the Wonder Tour narrative. It's because when you talk about that, the hero or savior arc, I mean, we're kind of trying to get away from that on Wonder Tour. Trying to say that the magnanimous leader is not the hero or savior. The magnanimous leader is a wanderer. <laughs> the magnanimous leader is somebody who... Their brain is always turning and they're trying to understand other people better. They're trying to put other people in a chance to succeed. They're trying to make less of themselves most of the time. <laughs> they're trying to figure out how can other people succeed and have it better than I have it. And so, yeah, this comes up all the time is we don't need to be Luke Skywalker. And if we're trying to be Luke Skywalker, then we're probably going to fail because chances are, <laughs> even if we have an evil empire, <laughs> we're not going to be Luke in the story. So that's where I think we can learn magnanimous traits from the Jakes of the world and from the Lukes of the world. But how do we then look at, really, how do we apply this in our scope, in our lives? Because there's no purpose other than that. So as we look to apply it to our lives, really, how do we apply being a wanderer, being a magnanimous leader? And maybe let's go back and look at Trudy here. Maybe let, let's get to the moment, to the mountaintop, and let's talk about Trudy's moment that she has in this movie. And I think it's when she's being asked to fire on home tree. She's sitting there in the chopper and she has her finger over the button to fire the missiles. And she pulls it back. And of course, Michelle Rodriguez, screw this. And then, pull, you know, drives away, basically goes back to the base, doesn't follow through. And at that point, that's her moment where she realizes that her map of reality that she'd been working off of, you know, she'd just been kind of copying and pasting somebody else's map and it didn't really align with her values and her ethics. And so she needed to rethink. And in the end, it gets her killed that she rethought that. But I think she had to have known that in the moment. She knows who she's dealing with there. The colonel is a pretty aggressive guy. I mean, if you disobey orders, you got to imagine you're going to be court-martialed at the least by this dude. So when she goes <laughs> away and she goes and she goes and he saves yeah. them, she basically is signing her own <laughs> death note at that point. But right. she's OK with it. Well, and, and Trudy, I mean, Trudy's got the got the great moment. Right. And like you said, she does it in a very Michelle Rodriguez style. 
but many of the characters get put in that situation, right? They're bought into something and they get disenchanted with the mission and have to, you know, have to pick a side, right? And so, you know, when we talk about what could we possibly do, the goal is not necessarily, like you said, to become the hero who then leads the revolution and, and has to be involved in this massive pitched battle. That's not necessarily the aspirational state. That's like the last resort. But what we do aspire to be is to understand the competing realities well enough to have the insight to state the values clearly enough to say, like, these are the choices that we're making. Are you on board with making these choices, right? This is the choice that I'm choosing to make that I suggest our organization should follow. Like the leader absolutely has to be that one, has to be the person that says, I've talked to enough people, I've seen the big picture, I've digested everything I can from the, you know, from the detailed pictures from all of our stakeholders. This is the choice that we're making right now. And this is the opportunity for everybody to get on board with that choice. And so we see in this case, Jake does enough to get into the Navi world and bring it back to his team that Grace and Trudy and everyone realize that they have to make the hard decision. They realize that they have to they have to fight the power, <laughs> so to speak. Right. But they have to they they have to rebel. And that's you know, the rebelling isn't the goal, but the having the honest conversation about what our values are and what mission are we really pursuing and when is it time to pivot, that is our goal. And then you don't necessarily have to do it yourself as the savior, but as the leader, you absolutely have to make sure that there is a clear North Star, there is a clear mission, and that people are understand what conversation they're having and how their decisions are buying into that or not. I mean, they have the opportunity to say, like, this isn't the mission I signed up for. You don't necessarily have to murder them on the way out the door. Well, I like how you flipped a little bit there too, Brian. <laughs> we said, okay, well, you know, as leaders, we want others to become better. And so to do that, a lot of times we need to become less or we need to be seen less by the organization or whatever, right? We need to get less limelight. We don't want to be the heroes in the story, but you did take it and flip it the other way as well and said, yes, and we also still are critical players in the story and we are the magnanimous leaders in the story. And there, to be frank, there aren't going to be a lot of other magnanimous leaders unless we are magnanimous leaders, right? That's that's the goal. We're trying to make more magnanimous leaders. So we can't underemphasize ourselves to the point where we're like, well, somebody else will just be the hero with this story, Right. Jake can't just be like, well, you know, they'll just handle it themselves. It's like, okay, well, yeah, does he have to be the titular hero? Not necessarily, if you retell the story in a different way. But as an interloper or an in-betweener between the tribe and the humans, yeah, he probably needs to be involved. <laughs> if he's not involved, there's no chance. The Navi aren't going to have any chance because they're not going to know any enough about humans in order to be able to confront them or vice versa, right? The humans wouldn't have known enough about the Navi to be able to confront them. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, it's a much less exciting movie if the humans in the Navi embark on a 200-year-long research project to figure out how to extract the unobtainium without disturbing home tree. Like, that, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, that would be great, but that probably wouldn't make a very compelling climactic final scene to the movie, so. But we get all these wonderful, you know, like you said, those wonderful concentric circles and these wonderful hero's journey angles where Jake starts with a goal, which is, I want to get my legs back, right? And then he goes through this huge journey and he gives up on his goals. You know, I've got to flip sides and sometimes you just got to make hard decisions. You know, he gives up on his goal and then it comes full circle to the point where he gets his wish, but not in the way that he planned. But he's able to do it because he's fully intact. His principles and his actions are fully aligned. From a hero's journey standpoint, it's incredibly satisfying and it's fun to watch and all sorts of cool stuff happens in the middle. But the lesson to take away from that, yeah, is not necessarily that you have to be the one holding the rifle or, you know, riding the dragon. The lesson to take away from that is the powerful thing is the story. 
who are we and what are we doing and why is that a good idea, right? And how do you contribute? And I think that's where the wanderer comes in, is finding the narrative. And isn't that what Trudy's really doing here? She's trying to find the narrative to subscribe to, the maps of reality that her values align with and she needs to be a part of. Well, not just that her values align with, I think, yeah, for her, it might be more about values, but there's also some of a truth element to it. I love how when she makes the flip, because we see a number of flips here. We talked about the flip with Jake, but Trudy's flip happens. And like you said, yeah, she is kind of going to be the martyr here. But she puts on the Navi face paint and she paints her chopper as well. It has the blue on the wings of it and stuff like that. Oh, yes. It's super cool how she does that because that's kind of her subscribing to that narrative and saying, well, I would rather die for this narrative because I think that this is more true than what the other people are fighting for. I think there's more validity to this story than the story that I was being told before. She turns on a dime there, basically, and goes completely the opposite direction and says, "Okay, well, see ya. This is probably the end of me, but that's okay." And we get this great moment. I can't not talk about it. Cameron gives us this good war movie moment where everything falls apart and you have the number of different people die all in the same scene, basically, in that in the big battle for the Tree of Souls and The, the all is lost moment. The all is lost moment, but I, I love that this wasn't Disneyified to some extent where we actually did. The people did die. It wasn't like, oh, they just came back later and it was fine. It's like, no, you start to love this character, Trudy. And as soon, right as soon as you're finally coming around to her and you're like, oh, I wasn't against her early on. But, you know, you're really starting to be like, oh, wow, she could be a central character. It's like, nope, she's going down and it's not there's no saving her here. This was her arc and she got to play that arc. That is so important. I don't know if we've brought it up before, but there's a classic Seneca quote. It takes all of life to learn how to live, and it takes all of life to learn how to die. That quote rings through in the hero's journey, and it definitely comes through in Avatar. But let's look at Trudy. She's learned how to live. She's been taught how to live. She's built up her cup, filled up her cup, all of her all of her maps of reality. And she's confident in them. And she knows how to operate. And she's proficient. She's an expert at her craft. But then in the end, what's more important and what makes her life meaningful is that she learned how to die. And I don't mean the physical death necessarily. The physical death followed. But first, she learned how to put to death her worldview, how to put to death her own mental maps that she had built up with the military for so long. She has to first kill those things before she can really learn how to live. Yeah. And we say that a couple different ways, I think, in our conversation so far is just that there's so much of this movie making is from the title on down, right, is that these characters, their external representations are reflecting their internal reality. And those things are evolving together, right? So Jake has literally putting on the Avatar suit is a new external representation that gets to immerse him in this reality. And the humans are doing the equivalent thing where they've got the mech suits and the helicopters to go be part of this reality. And it amplifies who they are and it visually represents who they are. You're absolutely right. Like, you know, so Trudy does the thing where she modifies her external representation, like she paints up the chopper and she paints up herself to represent the fact that she's got this new worldview and that she's bought in. Right. And that at least she is, you know, it's worth risking something for. Right. It's, it's worth it to her to be working on the right mission, to be working on the mission that she believes in that lets her do the things that she loves. We don't want to set people up, you know, we don't want to have a tactical plan that involves martyrdom for everybody around us. But we do want to set them up to wear the suit that they want to wear and represent themselves they want to be represented and get to go do the thing that they love in service of a mission that they believe in. 
we absolutely want to aspire to that. And as magnanimous leaders, I just don't think you can get around that we first need to be willing to put things to death, not necessarily ourselves, right? Like you said, we don't need to martyrdom necessarily, but we have to be willing to put things to death in ourselves, including our own worldview, our habits, our models. Sometimes our maps need to die so that something else can take its place and so that we can really learn how to live. And then we need, unfortunately, if you want to be a magnanimous leader, you're going to have to see some death in other people as well. Hopefully, again, it's not physical, but there is some death that needs to happen because that's the only way that we grow. So maybe to tie this back to Jake a little bit, we can almost tie Jake back to that Seneca quote as well, right? He's learning to live and then he's learning to die. He goes through this whole journey on Earth to become a Marine. He learns how to live and then he loses his legs. And so at that point, his cup is full now. He had his maps and map was growing and then suddenly his map shrunk. Now he's shrunk. He's in this wheelchair. His map needs to expand again. And that's kind of what we've been talking about here. And so then he goes on this journey to get his legs back and he's kind of living again. He had this death and now he's living again. He's learning to live. He's very capable without his legs and he gets these avatar legs and his model changes again. His map of reality starts to shift a little bit. He's like, oh, man, having legs is awesome. I can do all this stuff. He's once again the best at all these physical feats. And then he has to come to this realization at some point that if he wants to side with the Navi, he has to potentially be willing to give up his legs because his ticket to getting his legs back was the colonel, was Parker being willing to do that for him. And if he's not going to side with them, then he probably can't get his legs back. And he's made peace with that. To hammer it home, he's made peace with that at the end, because when he's going into the ceremony, when he eventually gets his consciousness transferred to the Avatar form, to the Navi form, he's doing that last video log. And he says that he's ready for whatever happens tonight. He's excited for it. Letting you know that he doesn't necessarily know if it's going to work, because he's previously seen the transfer with Grace not work. He's okay with that. He's okay if he doesn't get his legs back because he's come to terms with that. Those limitations weren't what it was about. He's broken free of that small map, that small cup that he had before. And since he's been able to break free with it, he realized that his legs weren't the limitation. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, literally, he goes through the cycles of rebirth, right? And this goes along with learning theory, right? When you embrace a new role, when you go to get trained a new set of skills or, you know, pick up a new job or, you know, you enter a new life stage. You're going to pass through another phase of incompetence, no matter how good you are at whatever the thing was you did last time, no matter whether you can still do that thing or not, you're going to be incompetent for a while. And it goes a lot faster if you just embrace that and like, oh, I'm actually I'm, I'm dumb in this situation right now. In this moment, I'm an idiot and I'm going to get smarter if I try to learn things than if I assume that I'm smart. But the opportunity for rebirth, the opportunity for fully growing into that role is there, right? And going back to, you know, our our mission statement for this episode, right? How and when to reset your map. The first step is recognizing that you're in a new situation. You're in a new role. You have gaps in your knowledge of the landscape. Your reality isn't fitting. The first step is recognizing that and embracing the opportunity to learn. But you got to realize, you got to know going in that that new reality, that new paradigm, that new map of the landscape is going to come packaged with potentially new goals. It's going to come packaged with a new set of priorities. And the, you know, the people that have done it already, they, they understand those priorities maybe implicitly. And being the interloper, being the planeswalker is going to give you a perspective to contrast that with what you already know, to see what assumptions they have that you don't have, see assumptions you, you've carried in that don't carry in this real world. And so it makes you a really good storyteller. You can come from outside and say, oh, well, the reason that our finance guys are acting like that is because they have this set of incentives or because they've seen this problem. 
The reason the salespeople behave the way they do is because they have this set of incentives or because they've seen this problem. Right, so it makes you a much better storyteller, but that's not to come in and assume that you're naturally going to be the best at the new world. It's that you got to reboot your own map to some level to be effective in the new world and recognize that that may involve embracing new goals. It may involve embracing you know, new, new values. Those are powerful experiences, but they're also really challenging and really uncomfortable experiences and huge opportunities for conflict. So that's why the shared reality, that's why the map, that's why the story is so important. To cap it all off there, with the whole death thing, you have to accept the cost because it's not free to reset your map. As much as it seems like you're getting a clean slate, that clean slate does not come for free. It requires a heavy input in energy. And potentially when you're pouring out your glass, when you're, you're throwing out some of that map or you're reevaluating different models within your map, different elements of the map, that can be pretty painful, especially if you solidified that map pretty hard in your life and you've kind of built a life around that map. In the military example is all too easy here, right? It's like the regiment, the rituals, everything is built around this map. And if you strip out that map and you're Trudy, what do you have left, right? You have to completely rebuild and it's going to be painful to rebuild, even if it's the right thing to do. Yeah, the growth mindset comes with it that, you know, you have to give up the comfort of the structure that you're familiar with. You have to give up the comfort of expertise. Again, zooming back out, if you're in a potential leadership role, not only to embrace that and still model confidence and storytelling and, you know, shared values, like, you know, you've got to do that yourself, but also to realize that all of your people are experiencing that. And some of them may be doubling down on their expertise and some of them may be in really uncomfortable new roles or maybe in conflict with somebody because they don't understand the, you know, the different worldviews. Like all those things are happening. It's all dynamic. It's all transient. And so being able to approach those situations with compassion and being able to zoom out and figure out a story that will work, that's the, that's the fun part, right? That's the cool part about getting to be the leader. Yeah, and sometimes you have to be willing to go outside your bounds of current logic. I think we see that in terms of the AWA element here, right? So the humans come in with this understanding of what AWA could or couldn't be, and that hinders them. Whether they're Grace or whether they're Parker or whoever, that hinders them. So sometimes you have to, <laughs> and it's a little bit weird to know when to and when not to. This is the wisdom part of the Wonder Tour. You have to be willing to lower the barriers of logic temporarily and consider that something that you had previously thought might not be true or possible could be true or possible. So when you go, for example, to give it a little bit of a business sense, if you go into a area where people run a process a certain way, and you have all this background in building automation around processes or something, whether that's physical or digital automation, you could say, oh, well, like this sort of thing would work here, this sort of thing will work there, blah, blah, blah. But then when you're hearing the people running that process, you have to be willing to lower for temporarily your logic centers a little bit and say, Yes, I've seen a lot of processes. Yes, I've done a lot of automation. But can I, I need to listen to what they're saying because while it might not sound logical or true to me, there might be a glint of truth in it that I need to understand. Otherwise, this whole mission is going to fail. Otherwise, I'm going to be aligned with the wrong thing. My understanding is going to be limited here. So when you go into somebody else's space, it's critical. I mean, Brian, we talked about the dragons piece. That was like a far off one where I was talking about the guy who believed in dragons that I was talking to from a compassion perspective. It's not to say that to go into that conversation, I need to lower my logical barriers to the point where I'm like, yeah, there, there must be dragons. But I can lower my barriers to the point where I say, in this guy's world, there are dragons. So what does that mean to me? That's the I see you moment, right? Your, your goal is not to adopt his worldview. Your goal is to understand where he's coming from. 
And that's, you know, as, as, as you're talking about this, right, I'm just thinking of pulling, pulling it back to the business world, pulling it back to the tech world, like so many of these sort of, you know, super shiny new modern business approaches, you know, it's agile software development and it's a lean product development and it's lean startup stuff out in the, you know, the world. It's all about just like, hey, make sure your process gets down to the people as much as possible and empowers the people to make good decisions and give you good information, right? Like that's, that's all it is, right? It's just different ways of behaving that make sure you don't forget to decentralize the decision-making. Don't forget to decentralize the information gathering. Don't forget to decentralize the opportunities for improvement whenever possible, right? The thing that has to be centralized is the mission. The thing that has to come from the middle is we've gathered all this information. This is where we're going and this is why. Like the why has to be shared and it doesn't seem to systemically emerge. It's not an emergent, <laughs> uh, it's not an emergent behavior of complicated groups of people is shared mission a lot of the time. Sometimes you need to synthesize that and take it, send it back out as a compelling story. But the execution can't be centralized. The execution has to be at the ground level, the execution has to be in the trees, in the helicopters, on the ground. How do you do that? How do you get the mission and set people loose? So let's put a wrap on this one, Brian. This has been awesome. We've talked a lot about maps of reality in these episodes here. We've used the analogy that it's hard to fill a cup that is already full. So as we focus in on how and when to reset our maps, I mean, we just need to look at the status of our cup. First, we need to recognize the situation and see how our cup is doing, how we're handling things. If we're stagnating, if there's not a lot of fun, I mean, that's a pretty good indicator sometimes that we need to consider refilling the cup or pouring something out so that something new can be poured in. We embrace the opportunity to learn. We are willing to kind of rethink some of our values and objectives when somebody is authentically sharing something with us that could come in conflict with them. And we're not so stuck tight to our mental maps. You know, you need to lower the, the level in your cup so that you can fit something else in it if you're not willing to lower the level of your, of your cup, which is probably the hardest part of this whole thing is not recognizing it needs to be done. It's actually pouring stuff out of your cup. And with that is accepting the cost, right? We talked about how in all of life we learn how to live and in all of life we learn how to die. And with that, the cost is not the enemy. The cost is the process. That about cover it? Yeah, that's that about covers it. Epic, iconic filmmaking, all sorts of cool lessons to be taken and all sorts of beautiful things happening on the screen. But the aligning the external and internal realities is, is always challenging, but fun to contemplate. So yeah, no, really enjoyed this conversation. This is a, this is a cool one. All right. So with that, we'll be back next week. We're going to be talking Fast Five. Remember, character is destiny. Quarter mile at a time. <laughs> <laughs>